Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. And those of you joining us online, good morning to you. We are in the gospel according to Mark, chapter 14. In just a moment, we will stand and read verses 43 through 52. Now, as you know, there's no food or drink in the sanctuary. And those of you who are joining us online, I hope you're not snacking. <laughs> but standing with us. Would you stand, please, for the reading of God's Word? And if you're joining us online and you can stand, you should be in formation. <laughs> I, I'm not, I hope I'm not sounding legalistic or anything like that. But if it lights a fire, I'll take it. Verse 43, And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from the chief priest and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body, and the young men laid hold of him. And he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Please be seated. Mark leaves out a lot of information. And that's not a criticism. Uh, we'll try to fill in some of it, but we can't get it all. This uh, title for this morning's consideration is Arrest in Gethsemane. Jesus often drew to this garden there on the slopes of the Mount of Olives, right across from Jerusalem, just separated by the Kidron Valley, and, and there you were in Jerusalem. And at this moment, he uh, was just finished praying, he had been entering the battlefield of the cross. This would be God's greatest offensive against sin. And I use that in a military manner, the offensive. He launched this great attack against the walls of sin, and that, of course, the cross. This is also the garden that while he met here frequently with his disciples before this night... He is being betrayed by one of his disciples this very night. And, of course, we all know who that is. We now look at verse 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priest and the scribes and the elders. Mark calls him Judas here in verse 43. This will be the last time that he calls him by name. He refers to him once more. In verse 44, as the betrayer, with swords and clubs they came. Well, after everybody had gone to sleep, it's dark out, it's late, and uh, pretty soon it will be morning. And so their plan was to take him without allowing or reducing the possibility of any resistance that might come up. Mark says this in verse 1 and 2 of this 14th chapter, the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. Well, they weren't fooling around. But they said not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. And as we discussed when we went through that first section in Mark's, Mark 14, it is during the feast because they weren't in control. Christ was in control of everything. And yet, there we discover from that one verse that they wanted to avoid the uproar. Well, they coming at night is helping them along with this. John writes in the third chapter of his gospel these words of Jesus. This is concerning the night that they've come out. This is the condemnation that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. 
And while John is not referring to this very moment when he wrote those words, it is a fact nonetheless. These men were in darkness. The men who were issuing this warrant for his arrest and those that were opposed to the Christ. It says here in verse 43, they came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. This is pure arrogance on their part. These these guys felt superior to everybody else, to the people. They felt the masses were too ignorant and unschooled to ever disagree with them. At one point, John records a moment where Jesus gave sight to a blind man. And the blind man was so taken by Christ, and he was standing up to these guys. Uh, they were trying to get him to, you know, uh, just uh, side with them. And he would not. He said this. He would even mock them at one point. It's funny you guys don't know who this Jesus is who gave me sight. Well, this was their response. Are you teaching us? Quote, unquote, John 9, verse 34. They felt you, you, you're not, you have no right to disagree with us. We are the keepers of knowledge. Well, this practice has been the case ever since men have been putting their ideas on paper or some other means of writing them down. And we, of course, we care what God has to say. Uh, thank God there are very intelligent people in Christianity. And thank God there are those that aren't as intelligent but are just as spiritual and just as effective even. Uh, these Pharisees and these scribes and the chief priests, they were incapable of appreciating the miracles, the teachings, the virtuous life. Why? Because they loved darkness. Their deeds were evil. And they resented that the people could not see that the miracles of Christ and his teachings and his virtuous life, they resented the fact that the people liked that more than them. Rather than repent, they looked to get rid of Christ because he did what he did on Saturday their Sabbath, because he did not stand for their arrogance and hypocrisy, but rather exposed them for it. And uh, uh, the temple goers, though, they were too dumb to realize that Christ was the problem. Bottom line is they disagreed with God. And we should n never lose sight of who these men were because they've always been around. And they will until Christ returns. And while we, we want to share the gospel, we, we do not want to be influenced from the gospel because of their position. Those fishermen, those men around Christ, they, weren't, they were no longer impressed with anybody but Christ when it came to God. Jesus was the one that had their full attention. Uh, that doesn't mean that they disrespected others of God. They certainly would love John the Baptist. In verse 44... Now his betrayer had given them a signal saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one seize him and lead him away safely. Well, Judas was totally involved with hell at this point. And after identifying Jesus, he's thinking, well, it's going to be up to them and, and I'll be out of the picture. And, and yeah, he will be. This word from this betrayer, whomever I kiss... Well, the essence of sin is the corruption of a good thing. And this is a corrupt gesture, a gesture that is supposed to mean far more than what he is using it for. His hypocrisy, of course, is just a, the, the smaller part of his offenses. But uh, Judas, uh, greedy in his own way, uh, learned nothing from the Scripture. Had he not read the story of Gehazi? Had he not read about the servant that poured water on the hands of Elijah? And, and yet, he's doing the same thing. Bible study counts. It's what you do with it. You can either study the Bible, fall asleep when the Bible's being taught. I get anybody. I said, not yet. We're early into it. Or you can do something with it. So when Paul writes to the Corinthians, he said, you know what? We reached a point we despaired even of life. We thought we had had it. 
He didn't need a Bible study at the moment. He was in despair, but it was because of his Bible study that he got through the moments of despair. It matters. If it didn't matter, Satan wouldn't target it. But he does. And there it is in the scripture, Judas. Gehazi was greedy and he was struck with leprosy because he defiled a good thing from God. And it was when Naaman, Naaman the general, came and with his leprosy, and he fussed a little bit with the prophet. But loved ones encouraged him to just submit, and he did. And he dipped in the Jordan seven times, and his skin was restored. We pick it up in 2 Kings chapter 5. This is the prophet dealing with Gehazi, who, when Naaman said, I I want to reward you for this. I want to give you garments and gold and, and pay you for healing me. And the prophet said, I don't want any of that. God did this, not me. And uh, Gehazi, witnessing it, says, I'll I'll get it. And so Naaman goes on down the road, and Gehazi runs after him and says, Oh, my master has changed his mind. And then he he gets the garments and the gold. He buries it, hides it, and he, he comes back, and the prophet is waiting for him. And the prophet says, Is it time to receive money and to receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you. And he went out from his presence, leprous as white as snow. Question Gehazi, is it, was it worth it? Was it worth it? The trinkets of this world. Question Judas Iscariot, the betrayer of Jesus Christ. Was it worth it? Maybe you're a Christian and you're struggling and God, you, don't, you think God's not delivering on time for you. And maybe you're thinking about turning away from the faith and going to the world. Ask yourself the question, is it worth it? Is it worth turning against the Lord? It is better to suffer affliction than to suffer an eternal hell. Affliction in this life, that is. And so it says, and they led him, uh, G- Judas giving them advice now, and lead him away safely. I'll identify him, and you lead him away safely to the judicial murder that awaits him. Uh, hey, boys, bring him in safely so we can murder him our way. That's what was going on. We're not impressed with Judas' encouragement to lead him away safely. This call for nonviolence from this man who is leading the Lord into violence. Uh, you know, Judas, a veiled effort on his part to protect his sense of nobility. Or, you know, on another hand, you can say, well, they didn't want things to, you know, if they started abusing the Lord, the disciples might jump in and then it would be a bloodbath and the disciples would lose. I think it's a combination of, but we do read, The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. It wasn't worth it, Judas. But it's too late for him. But it's not too late for those who come under Bible study. Whether you are listening to a pastor teach the word, or you are in your own private time receiving the word, however it is. There is, there is gold to be found in the study of God's word. Gold for life, that is. Verse 45, I guess the prosperity teachers would see that in a different way, wouldn't they? There's gold? I'll get it. Anyway, greedy grubbers. Verse 45, if you're, in a, if you're into prosperity teaching and you're offended by that, you should be offended by that. Because there's so much more to Christ and you getting something from him. But uh, I don't want to go. I do, but we have much to do. Verse 45. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. As soon as he had come, wasting no time, supposing himself to be clever at this point, blinded by Satan, unable to see that God was in control, not Judas, And he says, Rabbi, Rabbi, why not Lord, Lord? Satan was now the Lord of Judas, Iscariot. Luke's gospel, chapter 6, Jesus asked this question, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things which I say? 
And then in John 8, he says, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father, you want to do. Those two verses, Judas was present for. He heard these things. They did not register with him. He dismissed the word of God from the son of God. It says here, and he kissed him in verse 45. In the Greek, it's emphatic. It's a demonstrative kiss. It's not a peck. It's a kiss on the cheek, but it's a, it's a clear, deliberate sort of a grab the shoulders and kiss the cheek, and everybody knows, you know, uh, probably both sides, uh, both cheeks. Everybody knows, okay, that's the one. That's the signal. Again, Luke's gospel, he adds this, but Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? <laughs> you know, we might say, seriously? Are you really? I mean, is, is that the signal? Of course, Christ is totally aware of what's going on, and he's still giving us lessons from the scriptures. Incidentally, these disciples, though they were very comfortable with the Lord, they were not that chummy with him. He maintained a distance between superior and subordinate. And uh, for, for example, there's a few of them I had to take them out for time's sake, but I'll give one, Luke 9, verse 45. But they did not understand, and they were afraid to ask him about this saying. Well, if they were so chummy with him, they would never have been afraid to ask him about the saying. But there was that line there, you know, we don't want to irritate him. You know, at points, that they, Peter could argue with him to a point, but then there was still that, that wall. And my reason for saying this is that this was out of character, I think. Judas just strutting up to him, acting like he's just, oh, my rabbi, and, and as though the Lord is some sort of dummy that didn't see what was going on. And telling this, Peter, to Mark, Peter must have felt a surge of disgust towards Judas again that he had to dismiss very quickly or get in the flesh. Mark, very likely present for all of this, if not some of it at least, he too may have had a surge of that feeling. They loved the Lord so much. This comes out in the story. And, and we also find out from Matthew that when Judas approached him, Jesus referred to Judas as friend. Matthew 26, verse 50, But Jesus said to him, Friend, why have you come? And then they came and laid hands on him and took him. That Greek word for friend used by Matthew is just that, a friend, a comrade, a companion. It was an opportunity for Judas to say, You know what? He is my friend. And repent. Of course, he doesn't take it. But Jesus, of course, treating him with respect up to the last moment, still giving him opportunity. But Judas blows past the last exit ramp before the toll, and he continues on. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. That is a fundamental that is a basic teaching from the Bible. Sometimes your friends will say things that are true and necessary. And it is not because they're trying to wound you, though it may wound you. know, the truth hurts. But there are those that are deceitful. Uh, they are your enemies, and they flatter. And this is something that I feel, and I, the Bible does too, is an important lesson for us to learn so that we're not to thin-skinned in the face of correction. This was, uh, for anybody else, it would have hurt. He's calling me a friend and I'm betraying him. But again, Judas was full-blown. He's gone. He's serving Satan at this point. That is doable. It is possible to serve Satan. The world, many of them, most of them, don't believe that. We know it's a fact. And we shouldn't lose sight of it. We are occupied with serving the Lord, but we are also mindful that there are others that serve Satan, even if under the guise of themselves or some other religion. Uh, Christianity is supposed to be this powerful truth because it is powerful and it is true. And yet many in the world are 
devout in their approach to their gods. If you consider some of the people in Hinduism, for example, they're, they're very devout. There's so much hope on their faces when they go to their temples and they offer their, you know, their food or drink or whatever it is, or an incense to their gods. They're very, a lot of hope, but there's, there's something missing. If you've ever seen this, you know there's something that's not the same. They have more questions than they have answers. We have the answers, but we must dig for them. Uh, they're not handed to us on a silver platter. We, we must work and, and be diligent to show, you, show yourself approved. A worker, a worker, does not need to be ashamed rightly dividing the word of truth. Uh, hindrances to that? Self, you know, pride, self, the flesh. Puffing up with knowledge. You start learning things and you begin to think that you're superior in some form. These things we need to watch out for. Uh, whatever, you know, what do you have that you've not been given, uh, says the Lord. Verse 46, then they laid their hands on him and took him. Well, the sin that really wrecked Judas, the sin that even uh, grieved the Lord more than this treacherous act of betrayal exhibited with this kiss, by this kiss, <clears throat> the thing that really got to the Lord, and rightfully so, is that Judas failed to come back to give the Lord a chance to forgive him. He never came back to the Lord. He committed the unpardonable sin. Not treachery, not some dark, ghastly crime or act of immorality. The one and unpardonable sin is the refusal to accept the forgiveness that is offered to us with such high cost. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to move in the heart, to point to Jesus Christ as the Savior, to encourage the sinner to repent and to come and to receive mercy and grace and forgiveness. He never did. Peter would be there, not Judas. Had he come back, I have no doubt he would have squeezed through the narrow gate of heaven in the book of Numbers, when the people were being disciplined by God for their murmuring and unbelief, God told Moses to make a brass serpent because God had released serpents to bite the people. And they, were, they would die unless they looked at this brass serpent. We pick it up in Numbers 21, verse 9. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole. So it was, if a, certain, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Jesus said, unless I am lifted up, referencing this very moment, those who want to be forgiven and live eternally must look to me. You must do this by faith. All those Jews that were bitten by a serpent, all they had to do was look at the bronze serpent. But if they were hard-headed or hard-hearted, if they refused to receive from Christ or from Yahweh in the wilderness, then they would die in, in, because of the bite. And this is, of course, applicable to Christianity. And Jesus is the one that makes it so. He is the one that made that connection, connection between numbers and his cross. If I am lifted up, I will draw all men to me. As, as, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus said. Now, John also, about this event, he mentions a captain being, being present. John 18, then the detachment and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. The captain in the Greek is the commander of thousands of centurions, uh, equal to uh, lieutenant colonel, perhaps, in our infantry. Either way, the point is that Rome had a military presence there. So when the Pharisees sent them out, sent uh, the temple guards to arrest the Jesus, he sent the Jew, Jewish temple guards to arrest him, there was also a Roman presence there. And probably not coming in force, but still there in the background, ready to put down any serious resistance. The uh, Antonio Fortress was not very far from this Garden of Gethsemane, and it would not have taken much at all to bring in 
reinforcements. Verse 47, And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Well, now we're getting back to Peter, which is, and when I read this, we're getting back to me. I see myself in Peter. Uh, Once they laid their hands on Jesus, Peter made his move. He was no coward, as I have been making uh, my position clear on that. Luke says it was once, it was before Jesus gave, uh, when they asked for permission, Peter didn't wait. He acted. Luke's Gospel, chapter 22, verse 49. When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? What do you think Peter did? He didn't wait for the Lord to say yes or no. And it goes on in Luke chapter 22, verse 50. But one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. (laughs) Peter did not. He wasn't fooling around. He would have none of this. Once they put their hands on the Lord, he pounced. My flesh says, go, Peter, go. I'm with you. The swordsman of Gethsemane. We know from John's gospel. And we know the name of the servant that the, whose ear was cut off, John tells us. But John was very much plugged into the temple, likely selling fish to, the, to, to them. They were customers there. Uh, he is the one that gets Peter into the courtyard. Anyway, of course, the Lord restores the ear of Malchus that Peter hacked off. Peter, was Peter more frustrated that he missed the head of Malchus? No, of course he wasn't. <clears throat> but... It is the last miracle that Jesus does before the cross. Patching up the blunder of one of his beloved servants. So he heals the ear of Malchus. Uh, Otherwise, Peter may have been arrested as well. There would have been four crosses up on Calvary. But the Lord, of course, uh, rebuked him. This is not how we do it, Peter. You live by the sword, you die by the sword. That totally disarmed Peter mentally. He didn't know what to do at that point. 2 Corinthians. I I, I like this verse when things are going my way. I don't like this verse when things are not going my way as far as what the enemy is doing. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. And, of course, that the weapon of pulling down strongholds is oftentimes enduring persecution even to the death. So Simon's swing of the sword that just took place, far more nobler than the kiss of Judas, is it not? I would rather swing the sword and be rebuked than give the kiss of a traitor. And yet... I know that in me dwells no good thing, my flesh. In my flesh is no good thing. I'm capable of any sin. But I also know, as Peter tells us, kept by the power of God. I don't have to rely on my strength. I rely on the Lord. Peter, unwittingly fighting against our redemption and his own redemption. He did this before. When the Lord said that he was going to the cross and Peter at Caesarea Philippi said, No, be it far from you. And the Lord says, to say, Get behind me, Satan. Well, this is the second time. Because he doesn't yet understand what's going on. He doesn't understand that Jesus is indeed the sacrificial lamb, not just a philosophy. And so, instead of me paying the price for my sin... He paid it. Matthew 26, verse 56. All this was done that the scripture of the prophets might be fulfilled. And Jesus is going to say that again. Well, that tells us that this is totally under the control of God. But back to Peter again. When he denies the Lord, when he flees the garden here and later denies the Lord, then he goes out and weeps. It's not because he was a coward. Though he thought it was cowardly of him, it was really just confusion. And we've just proven that he's no coward. He's ready to fight these guys to the death. The fact that they all asked, shall we draw swords? 
demonstrates that they were prepared to die for him. But it was more important to obey the Lord. Although Jesus had to give Peter a little extra uh, lesson on that. Uh, so his, his failure in fleeing and not dying there, uh, but still wanting to obey the Lord and receiving the rebuke when the Lord said, this is not how we do it, Peter. So uh, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus long ago warned, let your yes be yes and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. And of course, Peter violated that. All these guys can forsake you. I'm never, I'm never going to leave you. And he just should have said, yeah, Lord, I'm going to be there. But he learned. And it was a hard lesson. And it's not sorted out in his head yet. And it won't be sorted out. As we pointed out in earlier sessions, it will take three visits from the Lord to put Peter back together. Um, after boasting, he would never run and then running. Now, we have to point this out. Peter will be there there to hear the rooster crow. That's just so much about the man. He could have been home shivering under his blanket, but he's still following the Lord. Albeit, he doesn't know what to do. The sword has been taken from him. Now, how do I, what, what's my role here? What do you think would have happened if the Lord said to Jesus in the courtyard, okay, get him? It would have, there would have been no hesitation on Peter's part. I like to stand up for these apostles when, when they're, I think, sometimes uh, wrongfully accused. And, of course, Peter being accused of being a coward irritates me because I don't see him that way. I see him as a man who is uh, very courageous in his faith, and he, it it's, comes out in his life. Anyway, verse 48, And Jesus answered and said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? Of all the guilty people on earth, of all the robbers on earth, of all the bad people out there that they could be arresting, these boys managed to treat the only innocent one as a criminal. They had a unique genius for spiritual insanity. And we're seeing it acted out. You would hope that at some point in their life, they, they would have come to that realization. But we, we don't know. We know that there were the priests that were saved at Pentecost. How many of these that were hands-on in the arrest in Gethsemane were converted? And then many of them became a problem after they came into Christianity. They wanted to, of course, Judaize it which would have killed Christianity, and it took an apostle Paul to stand up to them, a man of, of his intellectual caliber and phenomenal courage uh, of the apostle Paul. Just trace his steps through Turkey and how he ministered to those churches. And you say, I, I don't know if I could have done that. When he writes in Second Corinthians in that 11th chapter about all the things he's got to put up with, uh, you know, with the in the world, the robbers, the thieves, the shipwrecks, the pirates, and then he then he also mentions not to mention the things of the church daily. What a hero! Verse forty-eight. When Jesus again is where we are, he asks, "If you come out as against a robber?" They were ready for violence. <clears throat> they would kill to arrest him to stop him from doing any more miracles. We, we don't want you to help people anymore. We want to stop you from telling people what God says about God. We want to stop you from pointing out that our religious hypocrisy is an abomination. John chapter 7, Jesus speaking to his brothers who didn't get it that he was Messiah. And, you know, you look at all these people around Christ and you say, how could they miss the virtuous life if nothing else? How could they not say, there's something about him that's just nothing like us. But, you know, some people just can't give you the satisfaction of being right. 
And for siblings, that can be very hard. It's not good when siblings compete with each other in a malicious way. I mean, it's okay at, you know, the checkerboard, but not family versus family who look at me. Look at how, I mean, that's just, just have love. But anyway, that's, maybe that got somebody. Maybe there's a lot of things I've said this morning that's gotten somebody. Uh, well, that, if, if it has, it's, that's the power of preaching. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm just a messenger. Don't, don't get me. Uh, get the assistant pastor. He's not doing anything right now. <laughs> anyway, John 7. The world cannot hate you. We pause there just at that word. Can the world hate me? Or am I too chummy with it? The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You know, you can testify against the world without even saying, without saying a word, just by the way you live. Just by saying, no, I'm not going to do that. No, I don't. That's not my thing. Uh, I disagree. And then when they, of course, they start drilling down on you and say, well, why don't you do this? And you start telling them. These Pharisees and priests and Sadducees at this time, they were making this statement with their behavior. If anyone's going to create religion, it is us. We will not have some Galilean from Nazareth dare tell us about God. In fact, we'd rather kill him than let him be successful with truth. That's how it shakes out. In verse 49, I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me, but the scripture must be fulfilled. In other words, I am right, you are wrong, but there's nothing going to change because of this. Because you're that far gone. And the scripture announced this. That God knew this long before. And now it is taking place. How frustrating. I, I, I tell you. This is not. This, this passion week of Christ. When he enters the city. Riding on a donkey. Till the crucifixion. I never like it. It's necessary. It's imperative. You have to have it. It's our salvation. But who wants to see the Lord suffer? I rejoice that he did. It doesn't mean I got to like how he did, how he allowed the processes to go. There's no other way. And so even now reading this, I, I want to rescue him. Uh, that's what love does. Uh, love wants to protect the object of their love. And yet, greater love has no man than this, that one would lay down his life for his friend. And that's where it all becomes an act of faith and not just human reason. He was daily with them. In the temple, he says, teaching. As I mentioned earlier, he was always teaching. Because what is the opposite of not being taught? You know, the old expression, you think education is expensive? Try ignorance. Uh, ignorance is very costly. These men refused to be taught. And so they died in their ignorance, willful ignorance. He never gave up. Even from the cross, he's going to be teaching. He's going to teach us how men ought to die for God. Verse 50, then they all forsook him and fled. <laughs> Peter is the only one that points out they all forsook him. Now again, it's Mark's gospel. As I start in the introduction to the study of Mark, it was my position and others that uh, Peter is the one that gave Mark this information, though Mark was present for some of it himself. Uh, all of the indicators go in that direction, and that's how I'm approaching it. So, uh, it's, it, you know, they all forsook him. It wasn't just me. Zechariah 13.7 is the prophecy that said this would happen. Awake, uh, awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Against the man who is my companion. In the Hebrew there is the man who is my equal. That's what a companion is. Uh, the Soviets blew that. Or the communists. You know, calling everybody comrade while they're killing each other. Is what mad. Communism is madness. And these, these, these young ignorant people walking around with Che Guevara on their shirt. Do not understand the man was a serial killer. And would shoot them as quick as he would light a cigar. And it's just the ignorance that, that uh, is given or dispensed in institutions 
that are supposed to be anything but ignorance. They're supposed to be institutions of learning, truth. Anyhow, uh, I'm still irritated from the 60s. I couldn't understand why the college kids weren't in classroom and out there demonstrating. I couldn't get that. I really, it's like, why? I got to go to class. Why do they get to go to, play hooky? Anyhow, I mean, why do they get to protest our troops coming back from war? All right, I'm, you know, I'm, st- I'm I've forgiven them. I just don't like them. No, okay. Anyway, back to Zechariah. The one who is my equal, says Yahweh of hosts. Well, that's an indication of the deity of Jesus Christ, that he is God the Son, equal with the Father. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. And this is what we're seeing. They all fled. Then I will turn my hand against the little ones. And that is, of course, subsequent persecution that will come to, to these men, but not tonight. Their turn will come. But now it is the Lord's special work, and they have no part in that. True grit is no match for unleashed evil. And no matter how much courage they may have entered into this, this was something very dark and spiritual. Luke chapter 22, Jesus says, But this is your hour, the power of darkness. Uh, if you think your Christianity is just some recital of religion, you've missed it. You might not have it. It is a very real and spiritual world that uh, we are interacting with. Jacob, when he saw the ladder going up and down from earth to heaven, there's this interaction between God and his people that is very real. And there is also an enemy. And uh, this is, uh, once it's understood by we Christians, we become stronger with this information. This is, this is intelligence. This is vital. And it is, it is accurate intelligence. And once we understand, uh, in ministry, for me to understand that the Satan works in the, Satan targets Christians and how we think and what we do is very helpful information for me as a pastor Otherwise, I begin to say, well, that person is just this, or that person is that. No, it is a real devil that we fight. Now, it doesn't work the other way. I mean, I'm just, I just got it together. And you don't have to worry about that. Of course, sarcasm, or just being absurd here. This is why we covet the prayers of each other. Whether you see, you know, you can say as a Christian, I have seen more unanswered prayer than answered prayer. Have you? Have you really? Have you seen everything God has done? Do you see all the intricacies that he works out and allows and disallows? Of course not. So we hold our tongue and we become disciples, disciplined, ready to learn and ready to act. And so this is a big deal. Uh, Jesus, at this time, he, he understood, of course, the prophecies. He's the author and finisher of our, our faith. These men did not understand. They were living the verse. At the, they, they certainly knew about these things, but they didn't connect it at the time, which is not unusual. You know, under pressure, it's hard to think clearly. You've got to train yourself to, to think clearly under pressure. John chapter 16, indeed, the hour is coming. Yes, has now come that you will be scattered, each to his own, and will leave me alone. And yet I am not alone because the Father is with me. Well, the moment will come when he will say, why have you forsaken me to the Father? Because that's a whole nother, whole nother realm that we cannot totally enter in. We can look down the hallway, and that's about it. But what else could they do at this point? He stopped them from fighting, And then he asked that they would be released. John chapter 18, Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. He wanted them to flee so they could live to preach and carry out what he invested in them for the last three and a half years. The Lord had more for them to do than to be slain that night. What a waste that would have been had Peter been killed there in the Garden of Gethsemane. It would have been a lot of problems with that, the distraction from what he was doing, and on and on. 
it was important to the Lord that they get out of there and live to preach and to lead the church, which Pentecost, of course, begins to. When we get to the book of Acts, you know, it's the, the, the momentum, the excitement that comes with that. It's for us to not just read about it and be thrilled as you would an action movie. It's for us to capture, catch the vision. And as the years go on, I, I don't know, you know, you have these times where you, you're obeying Christ with no emotion. It's just duty. It's obedience. And that is a good thing. And then there are those times where there's a lot of emotion. And that's a nicer deal. But you can't count on that. You have to be ready to serve no matter what. And thus, John the Baptist, are you the one or do we look for another? Emotionally, he was struggling, but he was obedient to the end. Anyway, they were to do the work he gave them to do. Verse 51. Sounds like we did a lot of verses this morning. We're up to verse 51. (laughs) Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body, and the young man laid hold of him. I do think it's too much information in this, these two verses, but, you know, so it is. Let's see what's happening. This uh, is not a mysterious, random entry by Mark. I very strongly feel this is Mark, sort of a cameo appearance, appearance, autobiographical. If not Mark, then who? And if not Mark, then why bother? It, takes, it would take away from Jesus Christ what he is doing. There's got to be a better reason why this is said. It is Mark's way of saying, as a lad, I saw it. I was there. It was real to him. And it could not be unsaid by him. He could not leave this out. Could you imagine seeing something like this and writing about it? And not mentioning that I saw this. John starts off his, his first letter. In, in this very way. What we got? We got, we, we got 25 minutes left. No, we don't. I'm, I'm almost, yeah, I'm almost done. Uh, John's gospel, he's, uh, not his gospel, his letter. He, of course, he's years later after the crucifixion, resurrection, church has been born. The Gnostics have been, come up with their junk. They're inf- infiltrating the church. And John is writing to Christians saying, listen, watch out for these guys. I was there. I saw Jesus. I, I laid hands on him. Not in the way, in the uh, Pentecostal way. Uh, but anyway, that which was from the beginning, John 1.1, 1, 1, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father, and was manifested to us. He's not backing down. I was there. These, these Johnny-come-latelys, they were not there. So Mark is saying, I was there. I was there the night he was betrayed and arrested. And he may not have heard all that was going on, but he was there. Evidently, he, he was sleeping. And he gets up and he takes this linen blanket or sheet... And wraps it around himself, and he can, you can hear you can hear the troops clanging around the torches that the lamps that they have to, in the in the night. At this um, Mark, he lived in Jerusalem. We will read about that. When we get to the book of Acts. The fact that he has linen suggests that he comes from a well-to-do family, and then verse fifty-two, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Uh, they all fled, and this one was the one that was the shiniest. <laughs> you just see him scooting back to Jerusalem, scratching your head if you were out there for a walk. What did, what, what did I just see? Well, in all seriousness, Mark is saying Christ is real to me. It's the only thing, the only mention, the only indication that he was there in this entire book of given his name and I have to ask myself is Christ real enough to me to insert myself into his experiences to say look yeah there's some hard verses in the Bible that I I can't figure out 
But I've been born again. I have met the Lord. I know who the Lord is. I have heard his voice. There's a lot of things I don't have answers to. But there is the thing that I have the answer to. And that he is the Lord. And what is going on between Jesus Christ and me is very real. I'm not repeating this because I'm expected to repeat it. It is real to me whether you like it or not. Take it or leave it. This is what I'm telling you. And so looking at Mark, we say, where am I in the Jesus story? And today, right now, where am I in the Jesus story? Mark says, I was there. I'm saying I, I'm, I'm there too. I'm present and I'm accounted for in Christ. A lot of military little, you know, things put in. So you civilians can like catch up. All right, that didn't go over well. Let's pray. <laughs> the civilians were waiting for him after church. <laughs> Our Father, so much information. Uh, just on every page. In between the lines. Uh, <clears throat> all held in order, in check. Between the prophets and the apostles. We thank you for these things. We always want to do something very useful, very helpful for the kingdom. Rather than dragging others down, Lord, may you use us to lift them up. And may we do that by lifting you up, exalting you. If you have been listening and you have never opened your heart to Christ, <clears throat> you are like one of those that have betrayed him, that have come against him, that are looking to silence him. You can do something about that. Right now, if as I've been speaking, you've sensed God tugging on your heart, saying to you that he wants you to be right with him, that your sins need to be dealt with so that your relationship can start and times of refreshing can come. Spiritual refreshing. If you would like to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your savior, the one who died in your place for your sins, who rose again to demonstrate that he is indeed a sovereign Lord, then all you need to do is make a prayer like the one I'm going to give you as an example, in sincerity. If you say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I've broken your commandments. I come to you. No one else has died for me. No one else is good enough to die for me but you. And I ask you to forgive me. I open my heart to you. And I ask you to be, from this day forward, not only the Savior who delivers me from judgment to come, but also the ruler over my life right now. And now, Father, if anyone has made this prayer this morning, may, um, may they not be ashamed of it. May they be quick to act on it. And may you keep them by your power. In Jesus' name, I ask you, amen.